Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 76 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. August has arrived and it's time to start thinking about the jobs that need to be completed in order to prepare the colonies for the colder months ahead. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Another week, and it's been a period of changeable weather, a few more thundery showers mixed in with some bright, warm, summery days, fairly typical for the time of year, I guess. And we seem to have moved on from that heat wave that we had, and I don't think we'll see temperatures of that order again this summer. Never say never, of course, but the next few weeks looked like being unsettled, as the weather presenters on TV would say, and I don't think that we'll get back to those very high temperatures again. I wanted to start with the ongoing saga of the newly mated queen that was attacked and recovered to mate and start laying eggs. I inspected the nuke a few days ago and found the queen had settled down and was laying, but not as rapidly as I would have hoped, and there were a couple of frames that had plenty of space but no eggs. I actually spotted her and marked her, and we watched her for some time prior to marking her, and she wandered around the frame uh, full of empty cells, dipping her head into an occasional cell, but seemingly unimpressed with what she was seeing and just walked away without laying anything. She did this for several minutes, and I didn't see her lay a single egg. Now, this could be down to several reasons, but on the very next frame I found a partially drawn queen cell with a growing, developing larvae inside, and on the next frame, a sealed queen cell. Both queen cells were in what would be traditionally viewed as supersedure queen cell positions, about a third of the way down from the top bar and roughly central to the frame. It then becomes a bit of a guessing game to decide what the bees are up to. Is there actually a problem with the queen that isn't visible to me, the beekeeper? Uh, has she got an issue in laying eggs? There were certainly eggs in cells, so she hadn't stopped entirely. And there were definitely fertilised eggs producing worker brood. So it seems that sometimes we just have to accept that the bees know best and let them get on with it. So I took the decision in the end that indeed the bees know best and that these were in fact supersedure cells and not swarm cells. And I left one of them to see what happens. I posted a video of the inspection of what I've just described on my Patreon page, so do take a look at it there. I also discovered a potential problem with some of the other newly emerged virgin queens last week. These were the ones that we've been holding back in the hair roller cages as part of the Nico system. It was time to release the queens from the cages, and having experienced the attack on the first queen when I used the sugar syrup dunk method, I decided to simply plug the end of the cage with fondant and let the bees gradually eat their way through to release the queen inside. Well, I checked last weekend and to my horror, the plastic cap on the end of the roller cage, which is permanently attached to the cage by a small tab, had managed somehow to curl its way back round and block the bees from getting into the fondant. This obviously meant that the queen couldn't get out either, so I took the decision to simply release her onto the frame by uncapping them from the hair roller cage and just running them down onto the brood frame. 
And this was the case in two or three, I think, of the nukes that I checked. All exactly the same. The little plastic cap had uh, swung back round and uh, trapped the queen inside. But I let them all out and it worked fine. Well, fine in all cases except one. This particular queen was in a huge hurry to get out and no sooner than I'd opened the end of the cage she ran out wings beating furiously and in a flash she was gone. She took to the skies and disappeared over the blackberry bushes. I did that kind of desperate childlike jumping in the air trying to catch her with my hands but she was far too fast for me and was gone. It must have looked quite comical though looking back at it. Oh well these things happen I guess. The remaining queens all released without incident, so I'm anticipating there will be eggs and young larvae the next time I inspect. Not like the earlier season matings, which had been very protracted and in a lot of cases unsuccessful. I've mentioned it before, but this year I've seen a lot of drone-laying queens, predominantly from the spring matings. The summer-bred queens all appear to have mated successfully, with the exception of one or two, and those had become drone-layers and of course the one that flew over the bramble bush. But we're now sliding into August and there'll be a flurry of jobs that will need to be organised, not least the summer crop extraction. I don't have the opportunity for any late summer early autumn crops such as the heather, and so I take all of the honey off over the next week or so. I don't have a warm room to keep the supers at a temperature to prevent honey granulating in the comb, so as usual I'll be removing and extracting all in one hit. It normally takes a week or thereabouts from start to finish and then a little extra time to get everything washed and dried ready for next season. As I mentioned last week, August is really the beginning of the beekeeping year. It's a time to take stock of where the colonies are at and to take action if required before it gets too late in the year. Most colonies will be reducing egg production now. Cells towards the outer edge of the brood box that were once occupied by brood will gradually emerge and be filled with stores in preparation for the winter ahead. You'll probably notice a lot less drone brood in the healthy colonies from now on too, although supersedure queens will still need to mate, so there will still be some drones around, but the frantic early season swarming and mating is long gone. We're also heading towards a switch in the type of worker bees that you'll have in the colony. It's not something that you might see, but the workers emerging from now will gradually be increasing the amount of fat bodies they have, becoming better able to sustain themselves through the winter months rather than the highly active slimmed down versions of the summer foraging workers. At this point it's worth pausing to think about what your colonies need to successfully overwinter. Firstly, a decent hive would help. Anything with gaps and holes just invites robbing and remember the roof needs to be able to put up with whatever the weather throws at it so having a waterproof roof really helps. I'm all for the open mesh floors. I think the flow of air around the brood nest really helps, and I don't think it chills the cluster unnecessarily. I don't ever leave the Varroa screen in the floor, apart from when I'm doing a mite drop check or if I'm treating with my oxalic acid sublimator. So let's assume that we all have sound hives. Next on the list is the health of the colony. Are the bees healthy enough to see out the long winter? Now, I'm not suggesting you should destroy a colony that has an occasional cell of chalk brood, but if it's riddled with the stuff, you might want to consider a late shook swarm and requeening, but don't leave it too late. If the colony is healthy, 
How is the queen? Is she laying well? And are there plenty of eggs still being produced? We know she'll slow down her egg laying, and if she's an older queen, this will likely happen sooner rather than later, whereas a young queen will continue laying quite vigorously into the autumn months. On that point, how old is your queen? Do you know how old she is? This is one of the reasons I like to mark my queens. I can see quickly the age of the queen depending on the coloured dot I've given her. I do like to follow the colour coding of queens. Interestingly, all my queens are now either red or green dot queens, so that's last year for red or green for this year. All apart from a couple of queens, I do still have a couple of white dot queens, so those are around four years old now. Incredible, really, given the swarms that we've seen this year. And yes, before you ask, I have produced a few new queens from those older queens. It'll be interesting to see how they turn out. A young queen in the colony now will continue to lay well into the autumn. This provides the colony with plenty of bees heading into the winter, allowing them every chance of surviving through to next spring. If you have a really old queen, and I know some of you out there are very protective of your older queens, it may be time to move her into a nuke and replace her with a younger, more productive queen. By moving her into a nuke, you can allow her to overwinter with a smaller colony and not have such a large brood area to lay eggs into. This might just be the difference between getting a colony through the winter or finding she's become a drone layer in January. That would be just terrible. It's also time to start assessing colonies for strength and size. If they're in a full-size hive, do the bees cover every frame? Are you still seeing lots of emerging young bees? Remember, these will be the ones that will start to sustain the colony through the winter months. If you only have a small patch of brood now, with no eggs being laid, the colony may just become weaker and weaker. Of course, at this time of the year, you may have a newly mated supersedure queen in the colony about to come into lay, so don't be in too big a hurry to unite colonies or to buy in a replacement queen. But this always throws up the question, well, how late is too late? Thinking logically about it, you can probably work backwards from late autumn. Workers take 21 days to emerge from the point of the egg being laid, and you probably want a minimum of three or four frames of brood at that time each frame of brood giving around two seams of bees. With a young queen laying well into late autumn, you could probably get away with a replacement queen as late as September, but beyond that, I would say risks increase dramatically. Far better to get everything right and sorted by the end of August to allow plenty of time for treating and feeding. Remember also, the colony will need plenty of stores to sustain them from late October through to March or possibly even April. Here in Norfolk, I'm quite fortunate. We have plenty of ivy for the late autumn pollen and nectar, and again, hazel and willow early in the spring. But I'm always mindful of ensuring the colonies have enough food to see them through. There can be nothing worse than watching a colony make it through the long winter months, only to find that they've starved out in the last couple of weeks prior to the new season starting. The amount of food each colony needs is very variable. And it's another added complication that beginner beekeepers and some more experienced beekeepers find tricky to deal with. I find that national hives are always better doubled up or given a super beneath the brood box to fill with winter stores. The commercial and Langstroth boxes that I have have got more than enough room for all but the very largest, hungriest colonies, provided they're fed adequately in the autumn. Here, you'll find the brood nest diminishes as you feed and the bees will normally backfill the syrup, keeping it close at hand surrounding the brood nest and having it easy to access. 
As I mentioned last week, the increase in the number of wasps over the last month has gradually grown to the point that now, if any brace comb or empty frames are removed from my hives during inspection, it's pretty much guaranteed that the next time I look down at them, there'll be at least a couple of wasps hurriedly inspecting and feeding on it. These are quickly joined by robbing bees, and if left, will be picked clean within minutes. The problem with this is twofold, really. Firstly, there's the general encouragement of robbing. Bees and wasps seem to become more and more frenzied in their search of an easy source of food, and once they start down this path, it seems they will then actively search out other locations for free food. And invariably, this means weaker colonies in the apiary come under attack. The other issue is one of disease. If by some chance the colony being inspected carried some particular disease, let's say, as it's particularly relevant to me this year, they have chronic bee paralysis virus, any bee feeding on this removed infected frame may well pick up the virus and transport it back to its own hive. I would add this is another reason I don't favour open feeding of any kind. Open feeding being performed by pouring either syrup or pollen substitute into an open container which is sheltered from any rain, but allows free access of any bees or for that matter any other insects such as wasps. On another point here, it seems wasteful to provide food for the local wasp population too, so I just don't do it. Anyway, an example of how clever the local wasp population is occurred just this week. I'd left some syrup at the queen-rearing apiary for feeding some of the nucleus colonies, and as luck would have it, the only syrup I had was the Apimix syrup in one kilo sealed bags. These were kept in an airtight box away from direct sunlight, or so I thought. I'd taken one bag out to use, but then decided it wasn't needed, so returned it to the box, or at least that's what I thought I had done. When I returned this week, I found the almost empty bag left on top of some empty feeders, absolutely full of wasps and a small, neat, wasp-sized hole chewed through the top of the bag. It appears the wasps had found the smallest of holes in the bag and chewed it into a large enough entrance for them to squeeze through. I have to say it worked as an excellent wasp trap as the vast majority of wasps simply couldn't find their way out. The kilo of syrup was almost gone, so it's an expensive wasp trap, and another reason why at the end of the day you should always have a walk round the apiary to make sure everything is stowed away. Now is a good time to carry out final disease inspections, paying particular attention to the brood. The only effective way to do this is to shake the bees from the frames and inspect the brood closely. The primary diseases to check for are the brood diseases, European fowl brood and American fowl brood. But at the same time, it's easy enough to check for sac brood and chalk brood, and of course the occasional wax moth. Chalk brood is predominantly seen as a springtime problem, but just this week I discovered a nucleus colony that suddenly become riddled with it. I suspect it's as a result of the increase in size of brood and adult bees, combined with the wetter weather we've seen. Again, it worries me that CBPV might reappear because of the damper conditions. Remember, if you're new to checking for disease, firstly check and understand what healthy brood looks like. I know I go on about this on a fairly regular basis, but if you know what healthy brood looks like, any problems stick out like a sore thumb. If you do see something you're not sure of, it's the simplest thing to take a photograph on your mobile phone and send it to a beekeeping friend. But if you're struggling to find someone who can help identify it, why not try posting a picture to my Facebook support group called Stuart's Beekeeping Basics? 
there are plenty of very experienced beekeepers there willing to offer a diagnosis and advice as to what you should do. Just returning to the chalk brood issue, as the larvae dies, it can take on the appearance of a larvae that has European fowl brood, so don't always assume it's the worst possible outcome. Chalk brood will retain the larval body segmentation as it shrivels and dies, whereas EFB tends to lose that definition. But if you're in any doubt at all, grab a picture and ask the question. Finally, remember you can always unite weaker colonies using the simple newspaper method. It works really well and colonies settle very quickly, usually within a few days. So if you're on a weekly inspection routine, you can carry out the process one week and break it all down, sort out the frames and tidy everything up the following week. It's an ideal way to make sure you get at least one strong colony from a couple of weaker ones. You can sort through the older combs and remove them for cleaning, and generally settle the colony down ready for the winter. You can see a video of how I unite a colony on my YouTube channel and catch up with more of my beekeeping journey by checking out the growing content list on my Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. Well, that's it for today. I hope you have a great beekeeping week, and thanks for hanging around until the end of the podcast. I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Yeah.